Father, thank you for just your goodness, your faithfulness to us. And Father, we, we, Lord, we just, we're here, to, Lord, to hear from you. And Father, we ask that you would be speaking to us, but also, Lord, that we would be listening. And Lord, just give us just hearts to receive this morning. We pray that in your precious name. Amen. We are in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to just do a couple of verses, verses 8 through to verse 11. Um, you can have a little look in your Bible if you want to find that little spot. We'll read it in a moment. Um, I would like you, first of all, just to imagine, if you can, okay? I want you to imagine the medieval city of Tuscany back in the 15th century. Now, normally this marketplace is bustling with traders selling olives and hams and various Jesus, kids are running around the narrow alleyways without a care in the world, but not today. The atmosphere is tense, the marketplace is empty, the streets are quiet. The Duke of Pisa has sent in his troops to capture the town and, and they've taken up defensive positions. The towers have been overrun and now the flag of the Duke of Pisa flies proudly from the top of every one of them. The news of this attack reaches the Duke of Florence, and he's angry. This town is, his, is special to him. He chose it. It is his. He faithfully provided and jealously guarded it all over the years, often at great personal cost to himself. And this town is so special to him that he wants it back. So he summons his soldiers. He lays siege to the city. This is no easy task because the enemy is stubborn, it is well entrenched, and even after the marketplace has been retaken and the war has been won, there are still battles being fought. Every tower needs to be retaken one by one. But despite the battles ahead, the residents of this ancient town know that victory is guaranteed. Our hearts can be just like that town. It has been captured, but God wants it back. And he is engaged in a war to recapture your heart tower by tower from the idols that have taken up residence there. God says in Ezekiel 14, he says, men have set up idols in their heart and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. I, the Lord, will recapture the hearts of Israel who have all deserted me for idols. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking into, into this church in Galatia. You see, the Galatian Christians, when they turned to Christ, they had turned away from idols. But Paul is now seriously concerned because, as we'll see in these next few verses, that they are about to turn back to those idols again. And he wants them to realize what a loss this is going to be for them. Let's read the verses. Verse 8. Galatians 4, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature were not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and those miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you 
that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And Paul begins by describing the condition of people before they'd heard the gospel. They were slaves who didn't know God at all. They were ignorant sinners. They served false gods. In fact, they are in real slavery because they are worshiping idols. But through faith in Jesus, they not only knew God, but they were known by God. And they'd been delivered from superstitions, from idolatry, and from slavery. Now, in the Bible, this phrase, to know, has a far deeper meaning than just some superficial idea of intellectual knowledge. It describes the closest relationship between man and God. In fact, it's the same phrase that's often used, this phrase, to know, is used to describe that particular intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. But it's also a mark of Paul's deep theological understanding that he is actually reluctant to speak of men knowing God. In fact, read in verse 9 how he actually corrects himself and he says that we are recipients of God's divine attention. He wants us to make very clear that the person cannot know God by their own efforts. It's only by grace that God has revealed himself to man. It is God who comes to you He seeks you, he finds you, he calls you. But the question that keeps coming back up again in these verses as we've seen all the way through Galatians is why? Why would they even consider turning from the all-powerful, the almighty, the omnipotent God to a weak and miserable pretend gods that are not gods at all? Why would they seek and go back to slavery. For Paul, the law is an elementary stage in religion, and it's the mature person who is someone who really understands grace. But for some crazy reason, they've dropped out of the school of grace, and they've enrolled back into the primary school of law. And they are destroying all the good works that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them through Paul's ministry. So they've given up the power of the gospel for the weakness of the law. They've given up the wealth of the gospel for the poverty of the law. You see, the law was okay in Old Testament times when people didn't know any better. But even then, the law never made anybody rich or powerful. In fact, the very opposite is true. The law can only reveal man's spiritual weakness and spiritual bankruptcy So it's not surprising that Paul is weeping over these believers as he sees them abandoning freedom for slavery, power for weakness, wealth for poverty. The law is weak because, although it can define sin, it can only show a person when they are a sinner. And although it can, can certainly convict us of sin, it cannot forgive us, it cannot give us any strength to actually conquer sin. And the the law's basic and inherent weakness always was and always is that it can diagnose the disease, but it cannot produce a cure. The law is also poor because compared to the splendor of grace, it is poverty-stricken. In its very nature, the law can only deal with one situation at a time. So 
For every new situation, you need to make a fresh law. But the wonder of grace, it is multifaceted, it is multicolored, which I mean by that is that there is no problem, there is no situation, there is no circumstance in life which grace cannot match. So whatever, so whereas this law goes stumbling from crisis to crisis, grace is efficient for all things and in everything. But perhaps again, the most shocking thing that Paul says in these few verses is that when you turn from grace, you're actually turning to idolatry. See, the Galatians have turned their own law keeping into a savior, a false savior. And for them, religion has become their God. The truth is that all work-based righteousness is always going to create idols within our lives. So what do I mean by that? What, What do I mean by an idol? Well, an idol is anything that is loved, that is wanted, that is treasured, that is enjoyed, that is desired more than God. So it could be a girlfriend, or good grades in an exam, or the approval of other people, or success in business. It could be sexual stimulation, or a hobby such as music or sport. Anything can become an idol. But actually, more often than not, the things actually that we make idols within our lives are often very good things but they become false saviors. It's what Martin Luther describes in his larger catechism as whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. Or what John Calvin calls the idol factory that is our hearts. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul traces the root of idolatry. And in verse 25, he writes, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Listen, the great sin of idolatry is to worship the created rather than the Creator. But idols are not just materialistic things. However, neither are they made from scratch. So instead, they are a distortion of truth which is changed into a lie. Listen, just as any counterfeit piece of artwork depends on the authenticity of the original item to give it value, so it is with idols within our lives. And our idols can be lies about God which will have some admittedly distorted truth within them, but as these partial truths, these half-lies, half-truths, that can be so seductive towards us or for us. Jeremiah puts it like this. Jeremiah 2, 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Listen, the problem with idolatry is it's not a matter of ignorance. No, actually, we dig these cisterns all on our own. We do them ourselves. It's a problem of a human attitude towards God. But the primary, because you see, the primary posture of a fallen man or woman is one that refuses to honor God. 
And this is our most basic sin. It's, it's the sin of pride that squeezes out any room for a proper honoring of God. So idolatry is rooted in the activity of the human heart, and it, it, it starts with, with the heart craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that is treasured more than God. So in Romans chapter 7, it's what Paul calls covetedness, which is a disordered love or desire that loves something more than God, which should be loved much less than God. So idolatry is this disorder of your heart. It's the act of loving too much what ought to be loved much less. And it's everywhere within our culture, everywhere within our society, and even in our churches, and even within evangelical churches, there are some major problems. Because in recent years, it seems to be there's a distortion in our understanding of the character of God that has resulted in some idolatrous views of God. So even within mainstream Christianity, there is overemphasis on the loving, the generous, the good nature of God. Listen, which is absolutely wonderfully true. But there's rare mention, sometimes even the removal of his holiness, his righteousness, his sovereignty. Listen, such a God isn't God. It's an idol. As Christians, we, we need to really understand the biblical character of God. And, and, and so we, we sometimes expect from so-called liberals this distorted character of God. And it doesn't surprise us. But, however, how can evangelicals who pride themselves in the authority of Scripture have fallen so far and so quickly, they've changed the truth of God for a lie, which is idolatry. So the question is not whether you or I have idols, we do. Our hearts really are like little idol factories that churn them out. And and, and the question is whether we recognize it or not and whether we're prepared to deal with them or not. See, the problem in our Western society, our contemporary society, is that the word idolatry conjures up this image of some primitive people bowing down to statues, which of course is completely alien to us and But actually, we're not that different. Every culture is dominated by their own idols. They just take on different forms. So although none of us are going to be tempted to bow down to the statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, however many young women are driven into depression and eating disorders by this obsessive concern for body image. Or again, I don't think anybody is planning to burn incense to Plutus, the god of wealth, but many sacrifice family and church commitments on the altar of their career. And listen, the list could go on. And the the ancient cultures, of course, made idols for everything, education, marriage, childbirth, um, fertility, pleasure, but so do we. The only difference is that our our altars and our statues aren't physical. So don't be fooled into thinking that you don't bow down or worship idols. We absolutely do. And the consequence of our idols spread like cancer into into who we are, into everything that we do. They drive us. They enslave us. And we need to wake up to the reality of them. In an article in Vanity Fair, Madonna makes some helpful confessions 
She explains her internal struggles that she has. She says this. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Perhaps some of you can even identify with something of what Madonna is saying in all of that. She continues, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that always pushes me and pushes me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now, Madonna's not known for a theological insight, but it's really interesting to notice what Augustine, the great um, church father, had to say. Not that different. He says, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. So as long as we are being driven by idols or looking for our rest in some false savior, we will never find rest. Which is exactly what Madonna is saying. As we explore this idea a little bit deeper, Tim Keller is, says some interesting observations on this whole subject. He says, the idolatry structure of the heart is complex. There are deep idols within the heart beneath the more concrete and visible surface idols that we serve. We are often superficial in our analysis of our own idol structure. And what, what Keller seems to be saying is that these surface idols are those things, are those people that are easy to recognize because they're on the surface. Things like money, sex, work, family, relationships. They are things that are easily recognizable, but they are not the root problem. They are like branches of a tree that can be easily seen, but under these surface idols are much deeper idols that are the real root problem. Deep idols are actually those things in our hearts that produce the idolatries that we see on the surface. And it is those deep idols that are driving all the surface things on which we spend the majority of our time trying to fight, trying to stop, trying to get rid of. But the problem doing that is unless we deal with those deeper idols that are driving the ones on the surface, we will never change. It's just like mowing over the leaves, or sorry, mowing over the weeds, but never removing the roots. See, weeds will just grow back unless you completely uproot them and remove them. Let me give you some examples of deep idols. A deep idol is something like power. So the person with the power idol thinks often subconsciously that, that I will only have worth, I'll only have meaning in my life if I have power or influence and success. So many of us find ourselves driven by this need to succeed, to achieve, to have influence. And this desire for these things, of course, drives everything else that we do. So power can be a deep idol. It needs to be uprooted. It needs to be dealt with. Second idol is the idol of control. This is a common one. Those who have a control idol think, I will only have worth and meaning if I'm able to be master of my own life. 
People with deep idols of control are looking for self-discipline and for certainty. They want to know that things are just going to go, how things are going to go, how things are going to be okay. They want to be in control of their little worlds. And this will drive so much of the way in which they live. Another one is approval that says, I will only have worth and meaning in life if I am loved, if I am respected by, and of course that could be an individual person, it could be a group of people, but you find yourself looking to others or for the approval of others to make yourself feel valued. It's exactly what Madonna was saying when she says, I feel the need to be somebody. But it can drive, it can dictate so much of our lives that it can lead to much dysfunction within many of our relationships. The last deep idol I want to mention is that of comfort. The deep idol of comfort says, I will only have worth and meaning in life if I experience pleasure or have a certain quality of life. So if I have this kind of pleasurable experience, if I have a great quality of life, then I know life is going to be good. And people with this idol look for privacy. They look for stress-free living. They want to find comfort at any cost. Tim Keller goes on. Idols cannot be dealt with simply by eliminating surface idols like money and sex. The deep idols have to be dealt with at a heart level. Listen, it's got to begin here. It's got to begin, it's got to start with our hearts. And we need to apply the gospel to our hearts. We need to read it, to hear it, to believe it, to embrace it with all of our hearts more and more each day so that you can transfer your trust from other saviors, from other idols, onto Jesus Christ. And there's the believing of the gospel that leads to repentance and, and transfers your trust from other things, from other people, onto the person of Jesus. But if you truly want to displace those deep idols, you also need to see Jesus Christ as infinitely more beautiful, as infinitely more valuable, as infinitely more hope-giving and worthy of all of your infections compared to any substitute saviour that you've put in Jesus' place. It's only when Jesus Christ becomes the true affection, the true passion of your heart, and these other things that your heart desires then will be uprooted. Then they'll be removed and replaced. So whatever you're looking to for significance, whatever you're trusting in to try and make you feel like somebody, whatever you're depending on to try and make life worth living, look away from that thing and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. For the Galatians, the surface idols were legalism, this legalistic observation of legitical calendars of the Orthodox Judaism with all its new moons and its, its sabbatical years, which meant that some of these Jewish Christians had become so intense, almost this magical um, obsession with the calendar, and they were obsessed by superstition and by special days. So, what started off for them as an act of worship had been distorted and had become slavery and idolatry. And their dependence on these special days had caused, had caused a divide between the sacred and the secular. So in some people's minds, 
Some days belong to God, and other days, well, they could do whatever they wanted, whatever they pleased, which led to the inevitable outcome that once a person had meticulously observed their special day, then it's very likely that they felt they'd completed their duty towards God, the deed had been done, and they could do as they please. So though legalism was the visible idol, it was not the root problem. The root problem was the idol of control. They wanted to control their little world. They wanted to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And when, whatever that root idol may be for you, and it will be different for different people, Paul is very, very clear. Don't go there. Don't go back there. Face up to it. Deal with it. It is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that you have a glorious inheritance. You are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, a son, a daughter of your heavenly Father. Nothing else can compare to that. But you can see in these verses how fearful Paul really is because he has realized that these Galatians don't seem to be listening to such an extent that he's even questioning whether he's actually been wasting his entire time in preaching to them. And the problem is that Paul's fears seem to be well-founded because even today there are those who once knew the splendor of grace, who once understood the presence of God, who have allowed idols to take Christ's rightful place. Listen, perhaps that is even some of you this morning. David Polinson is a trained counselor, and he encourages us to ask some telling questions to help us to expose idolatry within our lives. I'm going to read this five of them. I'm going to read them slowly just so you can answer them in your head as we, we go through, just prayerfully. First is this Where do you look for life sustaining stability, security? And acceptance. Where do you look for life sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? Second one. What do you really want and expect from life? Third one. What would make you happy? And what makes you happy? Fourth, where do you look for power and success? And the last one, who or what most rules your behavior? Father, I just want to pray as we reflect on those questions. Lord, this is a work of your spirit in our lives to expose things, to convict us gently but also powerfully. Father, I pray now, Lord, over my life, over my friends here this morning, that by your Spirit, Lord, just if stuff needs to be exposed, that needs to be dealt with, Lord, you do that. Lord, thank you, you do it gently, but also, Lord God, you do it for our good, that we would fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. See, the antidote to idols 
whatever that idol may be, is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. You know eternal life. Listen, your inheritance is in him, in Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to examine your heart and just to help, just allow the Holy Spirit to help you in that because, listen, we need him just to reveal what needs to be brought out. But also, allow him to show you areas in your life that you are living or even are in danger of living as a slave to an idol rather than as God's beloved child. That's who you are. God's beloved child. And we need to uproot these things. We need to remove these things. Not just the surface stuff, but the deep roots. That we may be set free. There's been a number of prophetic words yesterday and even this morning about freedom coming. That's the name of our church, for goodness sake. (laughs) But it's only through Jesus Christ that people are set free. It's only when you receive him. He's not going to just barge into your life. Listen, you've got to receive him. You've got to ask him. You've got to come to him. You've got to allow his spirit to work.